0: It's interesting, though, isn't it, the juxtaposition between that anthem and joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And what we have in the midst of faith are those sometimes opposites. The yin and yang, if you will, or those times where, you know, that one can't be really experienced without the other. As you hear these words from Ecclesiastes this morning, this is that poignant, beautiful explanation of all of that.
1: For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to t- tear and a time to sew. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Holy wisdom, holy word.
0: Thanks be to God. I was, uh, I don't watch much television other than maybe the occasional sporting event happened to be watching something the other day, and Dorothy and I were there, and I think uh, sometimes we watch some things together as a family. And, but this commercial came on. And you know how commercials are there. They're designed to kind of grab a hold of you. And this one, this one was introduced by these words. "The three, three of the greatest and most successful matchmakers in the world are coming together now. To help these three bachelors. Then you look at the bachelors. Three more handsome men God never created. <laughs> really, they need help? <laughs> but that's not the purpose. The purpose is good television. The purpose of that show, Bachelors with these three, and by the way, one of the uh, women is from here. And not Aldersgate, but <laughs> this region. Yeah. But, but. And the purpose of this show is really not to bring these bachelors and these women together. The purpose of this show really is to sell commercials. And the other thing is then the next week on talk radio, which I do listen to a fair amount, it, it, it was interesting the discussion about whether any of these shows is really real. And I will tell you what kept coming to mind for me. Those of you that uh, that remember years ago, probably 20 years ago, Jim Carrey was in this movie called The Truman Show. And that's kind of where I think we are right now. And certainly where shows like this are. I look at this and I think of the most expensive example of cheap love. The most expensive example of cheap love. <clears throat> all played out in the most intimate ways in front of anybody who will watch this. Cheap love. Then, one of the things that we on occasion turn to is the show Wipeout. I only watch this show for one reason. It's to see, for those that don't know this show, it's it's just an insane show of people trying to move across this horrendous Kind of minefield of obstacles The only reason I watch this show Is because there comes a time In every one of the shows Where every one of these contestants Have to face these enormous Big orange Balls filled with air And they have to somehow go from here Bounce, bounce, bounce And get to a solid platform I've only seen it accomplished once I just sit there in apt prayer Every time (laughs) Thinking Don't hurt yourself badly but that made me think about a number of other shows that have emerged right now into television. And these are the competitive shows. The reality TV, if you will. Hell's Kitchen. What a great name. Yeah, I want to watch that one. <laughs> and competing, these cooks competing with each other with this incredible, very vicious person who judges all of them. Or or how how about American Idol? where the the purpose of this show, I think, at the beginning of American Idol is to embarrass people as much as possible so that there will be some semblance of discomfort and laughter of people who've been told somehow that they are incredibly talented and yet they stand before what were three are now four judges, famous, famous people who are vicious with them and tell them just exactly how not talented, untalented they are in, in sometimes the most vicious of ways. And we watch this as somehow in American culture there always has to be one winner. And a ton of losers. A ton of them. And you see this with The Apprentice. You see this with some of the other music shows. You see this with the cooking shows. Now there is the fashion element of this. I keep looking at these and part of the reason it sells commercial time is because somehow uh, there are elements of it in which we laugh. For the discomfort that we have with any of these folks and friends, that to me is cheap laughter. Any laughter at someone else's expense is cheap laughter. And it got me to thinking about one of my favorite theologians and a hero, I think, for many of us. This young man coming into World War II and trying to hold his own in the midst of just this horrendous time in the history of the world. And trying to talk about the fact that God has created a place of grace. But what Dietrich Bonhoeffer does is he talks about cheap grace. And here's what he says. He says, the essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for Nothing or at no cost. He says in such a church no contrition is required. It is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, offering baptism without expecting a disciplined life, and offering communion without proceeding with with a time for confession. Cheap grace is grace without costly discipleship. It is without the cross. And even without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate, cheap grace. And it was in living that out, not cheap grace, but grace at a cost that cost Dietrich Bonhoeffer his life. Holding his standard in a very heroic way in a time where heroism was so needed. I looked up cheap. It means shoddy, easily falls apart, doesn't last, weak, poorly put together. And I think all of those monikers are valid when it comes to what we all too often see with love and laughter and even grace, particularly today. And so if we're to go deeper in any of these understandings or explore any of the more significant meanings, we have to first understand the cost involved. Let's deal with love first. Friends, you know that I do a fair amount of counseling, and and I do a lot of premarital counseling, or I hope to do a lot of premarital counseling. It is always my hope that, that couples will come in, whether with me or another counselor, for some time together to look at what a relationship and a healthy relationship might look like. It's important to understand that other C word when it comes to relationships. Compromise. And if you think about compromise for just a second, compromise is cost. Compromise means that we are willing to give up a part of who we are or even to some, sometimes what we feel for the sake of the other. Compromise. I don't know of any relationship that doesn't come with some cost to both sides. Somebody's going to have to introduce me to that group. And, and here's the deal. It takes time to often get where we need to get as couples. Sometimes decades. Sometimes longer. But it always comes down to that word. Compromise. Always. It's interesting that as Jesus looked at love... As he looked at that aspect, and he knew that it was a hard concept for people to understand, he came to his disciples on that last day that he was to be on earth, knowing that they still hadn't gotten it yet. And he began to describe love in a different way. And it was the love that we now come to know as agape love. And we somehow think that agape love was this elevated love for so long. When in fact, it was the lowest of the loves. Because it was the love shared between master and servant. And servant and master. In those unusual cases where there was truly that feeling that they were there to serve each other, even though they were in differing roles. And the way that Jesus then showed that. To remember there in the Last Supper, before that Supper... Or in the midst of that supper, we don't know. Jesus got up from the table and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he went to each disciple and washed their feet. Only the lowliest of servants would ever wash the feet of another. Elevating one to master and the other to servant. And then he came to Peter, and Peter turned to him and said, You will never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, If I don't wash your feet, you will have no part of me. Basically saying, If you don't understand this concept, you will never understand any other of the love that I am seeking to offer you and to have you then offer to each other. Agape, love. Serving one another. Paul took it to a whole new level then, even beyond that, because as he dealt with this church in Corinth, this church that was really struggling with who was in what place in the church, those, you know, the leaders were superior because they were always the wealthy and They would come together for this communion where Jesus had washed the feet of His disciples and they would come and they would drink all of the wine and eat all of the food, leaving nothing for the poor who were coming from work. Leaving nothing for them. And what Paul kept trying to say to this church at Corinth was you need to learn how to love each other. And then he wrote one of the most poignant, beautiful sections of Scripture preceded by these words. And now, I will show you the most excellent way. Dirk, would you read that to us? That'd be great.
2: If I speak in the tongues of mortal and angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a changing symbol. And if I have pr- prophetic powers. And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith. So as, t- so as to remove mountains. But do not have love. I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions. And if I hand over my body so that I may boast. But I do not have. But I do not have love. I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast or ignorance or rude. It does not insist on its ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I responded like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but when we see face to face, now I know only in part that I know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three things, and the greatest of these is love.
0: Thank you. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. And I will tell you, in 21 years of ministry, I have seen more childish behavior in churches than anyone anywhere else. What that says to me is we haven't done the right work yet. I see less of it here, but I have seen it here. There's a reason why these last two words exist on the vision statement, love and laughter, because those two are so beautifully united. But what we have to understand is that the love that we're dealing with when we come to a place like this is certainly not the love that you see in The Bachelor. And to some extent, not even the love that you might experience even beyond some of these doors. The love that we experience here is that all-accepting, beautiful, shared wondrous, agape, servant-based love. That's the love that we seek to have in a community of faith like this one. The outgrowth of that is even more truly amazing. Because the outgrowth of that, as we deepen those relationships of love, is something I saw last Wednesday night there in Friendship Hall. As we were looking and examining forgiveness. There was a conversation, the sharing of information in that room among 50 people. That was at a level that I have probably never seen in the life of a church. People who were deeply struggling with the whole idea of forgiveness. From a very personal level. Sharing some of their experiences and struggles. With what is a very difficult and challenging concept forgiveness. And I thought, that's it. There. But even in the midst of that depth of sharing, in that intimate way, was a tremendous amount of laughter. Tom, I apologize for calling you out, and I know how hard that is, but I, you know, when you went over to get your hymnal. But part of it is. That's who we are as communities sometimes is that we can laugh together. Believe me, if you'd seen first service, you would have been really thankful that all I did was talk to you about going and getting a hymnal. <laughs> but, but isn't that part of who we are with each other is a place where we can come together and laugh, but never at somebody's expense, ever. And so I apologize. But laughter is that natural outgrowth of this. It's that natural feeling, that deeper feeling of joy. I I love the title of the book, Be Joyful It Beats Being Happy. Because there's such a different level when it comes to joy. And it's joy that comes out of the depth of these relationships. The joy that comes out of risk and trust and deepening and sharing. A joy that we don't find hardly anywhere else or even the possibility of these things. As today what we're dealing with is reality TV all around us. So how do we then take that deeper? That was the question that kept plaguing me over the last couple of weeks, knowing this was coming. So here's what I want to propose. I want to propose that every group. This morning I pointed out the praise band, and I'll talk about the choir as well. And this is good stuff. You're so good. I know you can take it. When I when I give you, yeah, I know halos. There it is. But. But that every group, every group becomes that place, that small group, where before we begin the papered agenda, we take some time to check in. We take some time to see how it is with each other's souls. We take some needed time to stop and breathe and not move directly into the work of the church when the real work of the church is to be together And check in with each other and love each other. That's the real work of the church. And I don't care whether it's the staff relations committee or the trustees or finance or the choir or the quilting group or a class on forgiveness. What we do as our primary work in this church is to care for one another first and really foremost and if, if you have yet to find a group, let's begin to form some. Whether it's around interest, I, I feel that way about those writing the STP. That there is a deep care that's developing among each other to, to make sure that we can carry each other through this 200 miles on our bikes over two days. Maybe there are other areas of interest, but friends, that's what's going to create love. That's the work. Of the church. I want to close with this thought. Yesterday, Dorothy and I had unbelievable privilege. One of the most overwhelming privileges I've ever experienced. We went down to Wesley Holmes and got down there about nine o'clock to pick up five people. Those five people, the first was Marion Klein, 101 years old and most believe the first ordained United Methodist woman in the United States, maybe in the world. 101 years old. And I got to listen as you know, I was driving. I was the chauffeur. Uh, Dorothy was the flight attendant. Um, At <laughs> so many levels. <laughs> but but Marion sat here in the passenger seat. And I asked her, Marion, do you remember? I mean, 101. Do you remember your first church? And she said, absolutely. It was horrendous. (laughs) Because no one wanted a woman. No one. And then she said, but let me tell you about my second church. By the way, 1935. Let me tell you about my second church. I went into my second church and I knew I was going to confront the same kinds of things. And, and yet there was a level of embracing there that, that, that happened in, in just amazing ways. As a matter of fact, what they did is they allowed me to go for two years to seminary and be one of the first women to ever go to seminary. And they supported that. And they were all there. The whole church was there on the day that I graduated from seminary. And we came back and this was huge celebration and what happened then is it gave permission for others to take on courageous things. My intent, she said, was never to be courageous. My intent was to answer the call of God. Six years she spent at that church. And she has become this amazing voice. And I, I was the wheelchair bearer yesterday and so had the privilege of watching, I will tell you, clergywoman after clergywoman after clergywoman coming to embrace her. This hero of the church who is the most humble person you will ever meet. But then sitting behind the two of us were Jack and Margie Toole. Bishop Jack Toole, now retired. Jack was the one who developed the language in 1972 that we now stand on in the Book of Discipline. Jack is an attorney gone clergy. Oh, wow! And Jack was the one who coined the language around homosexuality not being consistent with the church. And over the last, what is it now, forty years, Jack has gone through a phenomenal transformation and is now that person on the forefront of seeking to change that language so that all might be accepted in any church and in any role anywhere. Jack Toole is probably the most respected bishop in United Methodism today, and there is his wife Margie behind, right behind me. These two have been heroic in their courageous approach to all of this. And then behind them were my parents. My parents, with whom I walked with Ralph Abernathy and Martin Luther King Jr., his dad stood on the forefront of equal rights and then did it again for gays and lesbians over the years and squeezed between those two. <laughs> Here's what the experience was. Particularly coming back, I think going down, there was a lot of wonderful conversation. At so many different levels. Beautiful sharing of love and story. Coming back, it was all about laughter and jokes led by... (laughs) But everyone participating. Everyone. Love and laughter. It was the perfect... And by the way, guess where we were going? To Emery Peck's wedding. Emery Peck is the conference lay leader. She has been a heroic voice throughout this annual conference and throughout the world and was a speaker at General Conference last year. And she was marrying her partner of 30 years, Linda. And I happen to know that two clergy have already been brought up on charges for doing gay weddings. And I have no doubt, but Cheryl is the next, the one who was performing this wedding. But sitting there in the congregation were two bishops, Marion Klein, And probably about a hundred clergy, most of whom were United Methodist. To celebrate a love that was shared between these two. We may not agree on whether that's okay. But see, here's the deal. In the church, it's not so much about agreeing or disagreeing. It's about how we do that. And I will tell you the way we don't do that is to bring each other up on charges. That is not love. And I will stand hooked arm in arm with those 100 clergy that were at that service and protect protect anyone we need to protect from that lack of love. So, there we are. We need to be courageous. We need to learn how to disagree in a much more appropriate manner. We need to learn and continue to deepen our love for each other, no matter the group, no matter the place. We need to learn more again that what that creates is the opportunity for deeper laughter. As we may joke with each other, even in our disagreement, and we saw that on Wednesday night. Can we do this? Can we? I pray so. Will you pray with me? God, we come into this place with two words that sit out on our sign to this day grace happens. Let it not be cheap grace, let it be Holy Spirit filled grace. Let us learn in even deeper ways how to agree and even more politically how to disagree. Help us to love each other, even in the finance committee and the board of trustees. Help us in every way ask each other how it is with our souls and take that moment to stop and listen. I ask your guidance in this time. And in the midst of this prayer, I offer prayers for all of those in this church for whom this is a time of struggle. We have lists of, of, of dozens now of folks who are struggling with physical issues, with cancer, with loved ones, with strokes and all manner of things. And I lift them up to you So many are listed in our newsletter. I list those for whom this is a struggling time in other ways, particularly emotional ways, and seek your presence in the midst of those lives. Help us to love and undergird and support all of those. I lift up those for whom this is a time of celebration, of children finding their way, whether it's new jobs or Or new opportunities, or acceptance in schools, or even in graduate schools, as we heard earlier this morning. Other celebrations that we can have together. Fallon and her 11th birthday celebrated today. And help us to remember to celebrate with our third graders as they, unlike so many of us, can list those five books that are a part of the Pentateuch. Help us to laugh. Help us to love. Help us to be this wonderment community of faith, seeking first and foremost to wash each other's feet. And as we unite our voices in this prayer taught to us by Jesus, help us to take that on. As together we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.